Welcome to Salem Alliance Church. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. This week's message is by Brian Candelo. We don't have time to talk about all of my mistakes, but I do want to share one mistake in particular with you. Uh, it was a mistake that happened several years ago, and it began with a question from my daughters. I have two amazing, beautiful daughters, and they asked me a question that children have been asking their parents for generations. And sometimes this question can take you down the wrong path. And the question is this, Dad, can we get a dog? <laughs> That's the question. And some of you may have received this question and some of you maybe not, but the question came with a bunch of promises, a bunch of life change. They said, Dad, we don't just want a dog, we actually need a dog. And if we get a dog, here's what we promise you. We promise to clean our room all the time. It's gonna look spotless. We promise to clean up the bathroom. We promise to pick up our clothes. We promise that we will do the dishes. Dad, we promise all of these things. And in my head, I'm thinking, that is one miracle dog that is gonna bring about this kind of change. But you, you have these children who are making these promises. Now, here's what every parent wants to know. Why aren't you doing those things now? <laughs> these are things that you should be doing now because they were longing for this dog, but they weren't exactly living into it. And they began making contracts uh, and then trying to forge my signature or coming to me with like, dad, I need you to sign my homework. And really it's this, we can get a dog, it's gonna be great. And so I'm like, no. So after, after their promises uh, about getting a dog came the lies. And by that, I mean more promises, such as, Dad, if we get a dog, I promise I will clean up after it. Whatever it leaves in the yard, I got, Dad. No worries. I will bathe it. I will walk it. I will feed it. You will hardly even know that we have a dog. Now, in the face of this mounting pressure, this relentlessness, as only children can do, did I stand strong? That's right. How many of you have seen the movie Gremlins? Right? Kind of the story. We almost got a dog. Uh, that's Scout right there. That's, that's our dog, Scout. Um, this, is, this isn't a Marley and me moment either. I'm not going to tell you like, oh, it's so good. This is our uh, floor wetting, curtain soiling, for some reason, sock chewing family member. Um, who, shortly after we got this dog, he tore his ACL, which I don't even know that was possible. Um, So we had surgery on the dog, a little puppy rehab, and about six months later, after the surgery, he tore his other ACL. And uh, we haven't had surgery, but we love Tripod, he's great. Here's the thing, who takes care of the dog? I do, my wife does. That's what happens in my family. There was this longing for, as if something magical was gonna happen when we got a dog, there wasn't this living into it. And that's what we're gonna talk about this morning, this idea of we can continue to long for something and not necessarily live into it. 
We're continuing our series on text messages. We're studying the minor prophets in the Old Testament. It's the last 12 books of the Old Testament. And if you were here last week, Jennifer did a great job talking us through Haggai. And the text message that we got from that is, whose house are you building? And speaking of the temple, because Haggai and the book that we're gonna cover today, Zechariah, are the same event. Both of these uh, prophets, they were contemporaries and they were speaking of building the temple up. And so Haggai came along and said something and Zechariah came along and said pretty much the same thing. And we're gonna dive into that today. Now, we've been watching some videos from Bible Project. They're great background to these minor prophets and we're gonna watch just a snippet of the one from Zechariah. The book of the prophet Zechariah the book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we're told in the book of Ezra that Zechariah and Haggai together challenged and motivated the people to rebuild the temple and look for the fulfillment of God's promises. Now, long ago, Jeremiah the prophet had said that Israel's exile would last for 70 years and that afterwards God would restore his presence to a new temple and bring his kingdom and the rule of the Messiah over all nations. The dates at the beginning of this book tell us that those 70 years are almost up. But life back in the land was hard and it seemed like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And the book of Zechariah offers an explanation. So it says, it, it seems like none of these promises were going to come true. Why? And we're going to see why in the book of Zechariah. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 7. If you want to grab one from the pew there, it looks just like this, and it's on page 1494. And before we jump into that text, just a little bit more background. Zechariah is the longest of the minor prophets. As a matter of fact, I would say it's more of a mid-major it's a mid-major prophet. There are 71 quotes in the New Testament from the book of Zechariah. It's a book that very much looks forward. It looks forward to Christ's coming and Christ's return. But the setting of the book of Zechariah is that the nation of Israel is coming back to the homeland. So you've got about 50,000-ish displaced Israelites coming back into their homeland after captivity. And they're led by Zerubbabel. He's the governor of the people, and the high priest is a guy named Jeshua, or Joshua. And they're leading the people, and they come back in, and they begin to rebuild the temple. But then they grow weary and discouraged, and they were told to stop. And so the temple gets going, and the foundation is laid, and then they have to stop. And Zechariah is a book encouraging the people to continue to build the temple to continue to establish the temple. But it is also a book about building and establishing the kingdom of God. And there's a question in Zechariah chapter seven that kind of sets the scene. It kind of gives us a little bit of insight into the whole book. So it's Zechariah chapter seven, starting in verse two. It says, the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regemelech, the, these two people, I'm not sure that's exact pronunciation, but those are the names, along with their attendants to seek the Lord's favor. They were to ask this question of the prophets and the priests at the temple of the Lord of heaven's armies. Should we continue to mourn and fast each summer on the anniversary of the temple's destruction as we have done so for many years? The question is up on the screen. Should we continue to mourn? Decades earlier, the temple had been destroyed and they came back and they began to lay the foundation, but it was going nowhere and nobody was building the temple currently. And so they asked, do we continue 
this ceremony. It wasn't necessarily a celebration. Every year around end of July, beginning of August, they had a ceremony remembering the destruction of the temple. And so they're asking, should we do this? But the question's deeper than that. And to understand how deep the question is, we have to understand the significance of the temple. You see, the temple is the the center of the presence of God. It's the place where people go to worship and to offer sacrifices, but it's all about the presence of God. It's all about God establishing himself among his people. So the real question that they're asking is, God, are you ever going to establish yourself again? God, are you going to establish us as a people? God, are you going to bring your kingdom here to us? And the answer to this question from Zechariah is, are you really the kind of people who are ready to participate in my kingdom? Their question is, God, will you bring your kingdom? And his answer is, are you the kind of people that are ready to participate in my kingdom? You see, if Zechariah were to send us a text message, you see, we would have texted him, when is God going to establish his kingdom? And Zechariah's text back to us would be this, stop longing for the kingdom and start living it. You're looking forward to it. You really, really hope we can get that dog because that's gonna change everything, but you're not living into what it is. With us, we pray this, right? We pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray, God, we want Salem to be a city at peace with God. Are we longing for those things or are we actually living into those things? Because he says right now, you're not living into them. Chapter seven gives us insight that there was three specific ways that they were living counter kingdom. Three specific ways that they were living not what they were longing for. And the first is this, and we find it in uh, verses five and six of chapter seven there. And this is uh, the message coming to the people. And it says, during these 70 years of exile, when you fasted and mourned in the summer and in early autumn, was it really for me that you were fasting? And even now in your holy festivals, aren't you eating and drinking just to please yourselves? The way that they were doing counter kingdom living was they were just saying, it's just all about me. All of these things are about me. They were doing the Christian tradition just to feel good about themselves, just to get another day off work, just to make sure that they're getting another big meal. Their worship of God was hollow. It was, it was shallow. It was self-serving. It was going through the motions. God wasn't really in the mix at all. They had these things set up, but they weren't pursuing God in the midst of them. I think it's a little bit like cheerleading. Stay with me on this. It'll make sense at the end of this illustration. And I'm not picking on cheerleading and the sport that it is. I'm really kind of talking about cheerleading on a more philosophical level, if that's possible. But <laughs> here's what I'm saying. Think about sports. Back when sports was, was really getting going and people would come and they would watch these events, right? Whether it was on a field or on a court or something along those lines. If you could picture the spectators all cheering just randomly and this cacophony of noise that made no sense at all and some people were go, fight, win and some people were win, fight, go and nobody was cheering together and someone said, you know what we need? We need someone to lead the cheering so that we can all in unison shout for the people who are doing things and so then cheerleaders came on the scene and there was much cheering and dancing and rejoicing and everything like that. Now, fast forward to present day. Today we have cheerleading competitions. 
There's no game. No game at all. So who are they cheering for? Themselves. Have they kind of lost sight of their purpose? Maybe a little bit. Have we kind of lost sight of our purpose? Maybe a little bit. Because sometimes we come and and we're so happy about what we are doing. And we come even into church where we are to seek God and to worship God, but we're just like, look at me, I'm at church, isn't that great, it's so great in me. Or the festivals that we have set up, the remembrances, the ceremonies, are just another meal for us or just another chance to have the day off work. And and we're kind of just cheering for ourselves and not really seeking God out in the midst of it. See, this is the way that they were longing for the kingdom to come, but they weren't exactly living into the kingdom. The second way that they were living counter kingdom we find in verses nine and 10. And this is something that we've seen throughout the minor prophets. This is one of the major themes of the minor prophets. And it's this idea of injustice. Verse nine, it says, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says. Judge fairly and show mercy and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows, orphans, foreigners, and the poor, and do not scheme against each other. You guys aren't getting it, is what he's saying. You're still living the way that you shouldn't be living by lacking kindness and and lacking justice and oppressing foreigners and scheming against each other and oppressing the poor. When God wants justice. Justice just means that things as they would be if Jesus was truly in charge. That's what justice is. How it should be if Jesus is truly in charge and they were not doing that either. The third thing that we see that they were living counterculture comes just uh, another verse later, verse 11. Your ancestors refused to listen to this message. They stubbornly turned away and put their fingers in their ears to keep from hearing. It's a great word picture, right? Because you can see it happen, right? La, 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 I'm not listening to you. We've all done that as children, right? We might have done that because of our children, right? (laughs) But this isn't just... This isn't just saying, oh, the noise of my life is so loud right now that I can't hear the still small voice of God. This is deliberately not listening to God to the point where you're putting your fingers in your ears. This is this idea that, you know what? Those commands, they're hard. They're too hard. Those truths, I don't wanna live by those truths because those truths offend other people. Or why would I do that when I see other people aren't doing it and they seem to be doing okay? So God, I'll listen to to part of this, but I'm just not listening to that other stuff. I don't wanna hear that stuff anymore, God. I wanna live the way that I wanna live and so I'm gonna stop listening to you. You see, it's not as if God is just arbitrarily giving us a bunch of rules to make us miserable. God's commands are in place so that we can have freedom. And the truth of the matter is, is that maximum freedom is found under the authority of Christ. You will never be more free in your life than when you are living according to his word. When you are living according to the commands in God's word. And yet they weren't. They were longing for the kingdom of God. God, when will you establish your kingdom? But they were not living into it by this idea that it's all about me, by continuing to live in just lives and refusing to listen to the commands of God. What about us? Are we asking God 
establish your kingdom here? And are we living into it? Do we understand that when we ask that, it has something to do with us, that we are a part of the process, that it's not just like, okay, God, we're longing for you one day to make everything right forever. Yes, we are, but we're longing for God to begin now. And we are a part of that. In the early 1900s, the London Times, the newspaper, posed an open question to the public. And this question said, what is wrong with the world? And the author G.K. Chesterton famously replied to that. He said, dear sirs, I am. What is wrong with this world? Me. It's me. I'm wrong with this world. We are what's wrong with this world. And so instead of longing for someone to come in, how about we start living into the kingdom that God wants to begin establishing now? Now, Zechariah gives us three different ways that we can begin living in. I wanna cover those three quickly. The first one is in Zechariah chapter one. It's what he opens up the book with, and, and it's repentance. You see it in verse three and four. Therefore, say to the people, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, return to me and I will return to you. Later on in verse four, it says it again. Turn from your evil ways and stop all your evil practices. No word defines the minor prophets like turn, this word repent. You see, we were meant to live in relationship with God. And yet when we sin, it takes us on a path away from God. And the more we sin, the more we get away. And so the the prophet's saying it's time to turn, turn back, repent, and come back back to God. There are countless times in scripture where we are called to genuine repentance. But too often, our repentance is shallow and selfish. Too often, we repent just because we wanna be on God's good side. We repent just because we know that we wanna stay in good graces with God and we want him to keep answering our prayers and we want to, uh, you know, we want him to bless us and so we're gonna repent so that we stay on God's good side. But it's selfish and self-serving repentance when we're sorry for our sin only because it has consequences on our own lives. We understand that. It's when you get pulled over for speeding and you're sorry because you got caught, right? You're not horribly repentant about speeding, but you are when you have to pay the fine. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm not necessarily sorry about speeding. But too often we think that the whole of sin is just the consequence that it has on our lives, but that's not the case. Sin is so dreadful because it it dishonors and it displeases God. Sin is so awful because it takes us out of the presence of God. It takes us away from God. It puts us on a path away from God and that's why we're called to return. That's why sin is so awful and that's why we must turn and we are promised love and forgiveness. We are promised the love and forgiveness of Christ when we turn. About a year ago, I read a book by Tim Keller called Counterfeit Gods, and in it, it has this quote. Fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. Now, let's break that down for a minute, because I don't know if that makes total sense unless we explain it. Fear-based repentance is this idea that I'm responsible for the way that God views me, the way that God sees me. And I wrestle with this sometimes, because guys, I, I do this for a living. I'm I'm a professional Christian. 
I've been so for a while. And so when I mess up, honestly, though, I get in this mindset of like, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. I know better. And, and I'm, I feel like I'm then responsible for the way that God views me. How God sees me is dependent upon my behavior. And I can get into this mindset of fear-based repentance. And the more that I do that, the more that I begin to hate myself because I'm going to mess up. And then I'm going to feel like God sees me worse and worse. And I hate who I am when I do that. But joy-based repentance means that we have an understanding that the sacrifice of Jesus dictates how God sees us. The way God views us is through the lens of the sacrifice of Christ. And because we have a hope in this righteousness of Christ, which we're going to talk about in a minute, then we know that whatever is inside of us, whatever thing is there that we just feel like, there is no way God can forgive that we are allowed to confess those to him knowing that we're not gonna be cast aside because he sees us through the lens of the sacrifice of Christ. And so that's joy-based repentance. God, I know you still love me. I know you still see me that way and I hate that sin, but I don't necessarily hate myself that way. And so we see in chapter one here that there was a whole generation that did not listen to this call for repentance and he says, and they're dead. And then... The next generation, what's, what's your response gonna be? What is our generation's response gonna be to this call for repentance? How are we going to live the kingdom out? A couple ways that we can lean into repentance even is just examine ourselves. Do we know that we are doing things that are taking us away from Jesus? And usually, you don't need someone else to tell you those things. You know what those things are. And so then we examine ourselves, and as hard as it is, we turn and we repent trusting that we have the forgiveness offered to us. And sometimes I think we even need to repent of our repentance. This idea, I'm not saying, hey, continue to repent for the things that you've repented for over and over and over again. No, the grace and sacrifice of Jesus is big enough to forgive those sins. And sometimes I think we need to repent for continuing to repent the same sins again. And so we keep short accounts before Jesus and we live into the kingdom by living a life of repentance that says, ah, when I step away, I need to turn and come back. The second and the third way are found in, in two visions. Um, there's a call to repentance at the beginning of Zechariah and then he goes and, and has eight visions and to be completely honest with you, some of them are weird. They're just odd, like what, what does that mean? But they kind of work from the outside in uh, one and eight, two and seven, and they work together and they peak at four and five. Four and five are the two big visions. And, and I wanna look at both of those visions because they give us insight on how to live in the kingdom. And the fourth vision is in chapter three. It's this amazing word picture. And this basically is life in Jesus. In verse one, it says, then the angel showed me Jeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser, Satan, was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Jeshua. Satan was there accusing. I think we understand Satan as the tempter, but Satan's main job is accuser. It's what he does. It's what the name literally means. It, it means prosecutor. It means someone who's trying to continue to accuse. And we know he does that all the time. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Speaking of Satan, it says, the accuser 
of our brothers and sisters, accusing them day and night before God. That's what he does. An accusation plays on one of our deepest fears. Am I good enough? Am I acceptable? Do I belong? There's a psychological phenomenon called imposter syndrome. It's the persistent fear of being exposed as a fraud. Have you ever felt that? It's this idea that in a room of people, you're the only fake person in a room full of real people. And eventually, you know, everybody kind of knows that you're a fraud, but eventually they're going to be like, yeah, you're not for real. You're not that talented. You're not that smart. You don't know that much. Come on. You're fake. And we can live under that because we have an accuser. And, and that's why our old failures come back with such clarity because we have an accuser. You see, when troubles happen in our lives, Satan says, God's punishing you and you deserve it. When you're trying to represent Jesus, Satan says, if they only knew what you were really like. When you pray, Satan says, why should he listen to you? You don't deserve it. When you see weakness in your heart, Satan says, you call yourself a Christian. When you've got that nagging something in your life that you just can't seem to overcome, Satan says, if you were a Christian, you wouldn't continually do that. Accusing, accusing, accusing. And because our conscience operates under the covenant of works, we start to lean into that. We start to say, yeah, mm, I'm not that great. I am. I don't know why Jesus would listen to me. I I don't know why people would think I'm anything at all. But look at verse two. And this is fantastic. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusations. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Jesus says, I rebuke you. I reject those accusations. Not because they aren't true. It's not that the accusations aren't true. Satan accuses us of some stuff that certainly we've done. But because we have forgiveness and because we have the righteousness of Christ, and this is what he shows right here, verse three, Jeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. He's the high priest. He represents the people. When we see him, it's, it's us standing that way. And he was standing there filthy. He was standing there sinful. He was standing there not being able to cleanse his own garment. So the angel said to the other standing there, take off his filthy clothes and turning to Jeshua, he said, see, I have taken away your sins and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. That he was receiving the righteousness of Christ. That we get new robes to put on and it's not just forgiveness, it's, it's righteousness. So that when we sin, And when we mess up and when the accuser comes to us and says, see what you did, you call yourself a Christian. We say, listen, Jesus has made the payment. Jesus made the payment. And the payment that he made is more than enough to cover that sin. As a matter of fact, I'm fully underwritten by the sacrifice of Christ. And so who then dares accuse us? And that's that verse we find in Romans chapter 8. Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? 
no one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we have access to this righteousness. And it's not just stronger when we're strong and weaker when we're weak. We are clothed in new robes, and so we have right standing before God. And so how do we lean into this life in Christ? Maybe never before have you submitted to that. Maybe never before have you put your faith in Jesus. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Maybe today is the day you say, there's all kind of junk in my past. There's all kind of sin that I have just continue to walk away from who God is, but today I wanna repent of that and I wanna receive this righteousness. I wanna receive this new robe. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe you've already done that and you did that long ago, but you still wrestle with the accusations. And I would say, don't be silenced or stifled by the accuser because your sin is on the account of Jesus and you have access to that forgiveness and when God looks at you, he doesn't just shake his head and go, oh man, I can't believe that. He looks at you with love because of what Jesus did. The third thing that we see is this, this vision, this next vision in chapter four. And it's, there's two olive trees and, and they're kind of, something's running from them into this bowl that's standing on a stand and the bowl is full of oil. And, and Zechariah looks at this and he's like, I don't know what that means at all. And the angel's like, really? What's, it's kind of self-explanatory, but he doesn't get it. So the angel does say, then this is what he said to me. This is four, verse six. This is what the Lord said, says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. He, he says, what's gonna happen is you are going to finish the temple. I am going to establish my kingdom here again. But it's not by my, might, excuse me, it's not by force. It's not by power. It's not by your creative ideas. It's not because you're a brilliant planner. It's my spirit. My kingdom will be established by my spirit. My spirit among you. You see, they had tried to build a temple under their own strength and they'd failed. You can read that in Ezra chapter three. And so this vision really is saying human effort without the oil of the spirit is gonna burn out quick. But how often do we try on our own? We wanna do that. We're independent people, Oregonians people. We're fierce. We got out here by covered wagon. I mean, I drove, but some people did. There's covered wagon somewhere in the history there. Right though, we have resources and determination and wisdom and we can give and serve and send and go and build and create and legislate and we can make things happen, but to what end? When we do all of those things on our own, to what end? I interviewed for a youth pastor job in Atlanta, Georgia many years ago and we went through this whole process and it was five days of meetings and talking to students and talking to parents and talking to groups of, of leaders at the church and the last day, uh, my wife and I sat before the elders and they were like, we think you're great. Actually, they were like, we think your wife is super great and you're okay and that usually happens to me. Um, and then one of the elders said this. He said, you know what scares me? I think you can do this job. 
And I was like, isn't that a good thing? And he said, no, you know, it scares me because I think you're about talented enough and you have enough gifts that you're gonna try and pull this off on your own. That really hit home for me. What he was saying is, you know, you could probably just come in here and try and set stuff up and, and get run a little bit and it'd be fine. But what he was saying is you have to be dependent upon the spirit of God. You have to be leaning in to the spirit of God. You see, so much of modern spirituality is trying to wake up that power that we have in us. But Christianity is saying, you know what? What you have in you on your own isn't enough. And, and don't hear that as a statement on your value. It's not a judgment state on your value. You're wonderfully made. You guys are amazing. You're beautiful people. Receive that. But what it's saying is on our own, we aren't enough. We need the spirit of God to be and do what we could not possibly be and do on our own. Anytime we try righteousness by ourselves, it's self-righteousness. So God didn't come saying, you know what, I'm gonna wake up the power that's in you. God came and said, you know what, you receive power when the Holy Spirit comes in you. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that's when the power's gonna come. A.W. Tozer says this, the spirit-filled life is not a special deluxe edition of Christianity. It is part and parcel of the total plan of God for his people. It's not just like, oh, those people lead the spirit-filled life. Me, I don't. It's for all of us. Romans 8 says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. God's spirit in us. And so how do we begin living this out? Well, we just ask, Holy Spirit, fill me. And we become more sensitive to lean in and to listen to the Spirit and to ask the Spirit to speak to us. We're not inviting the Spirit into all the craziness of our lives. Like, it's another thing. Like, yeah, just, hey, come join. Look at all the crazy I got already. You might as well come. We're asking the Spirit into our lives to lead us, to direct us so that we completely surrender. That's how we lean in. We need to as the body, stop longing for God's kingdom. And we need to start living it because we have a hope. There's hope in all of the minor prophets. There's hope in Zechariah. There's prophecy that we read in the gospels about Jesus coming. Coming and sacrificing himself for us. But there's also prophecy we read in Zechariah about Jesus coming a second time to establish his kingdom forever. And that's what we are living into today. We're not just longing. Sure, we long, but we're not just longing for that day. We're living it now, living out the kingdom of God right now. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thanks for your word. Thanks for the truth in Zechariah. And God, I pray that you would forgive us for the longing without the living. Forgive us for when we live counter kingdom lives. God, I pray that we're quick to repent. I pray that we understand what it means to live in you, Jesus. In spirit, I pray again, fresh and anew, that you would fill us. Fill us so that we can live out your kingdom in our homes, in our jobs, in our communities, in this city, this state, this world. Jesus, to bring fame to your name. We love you in your name, amen. 
Salem Alliance Church is a community of Jesus followers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. You can view today's entire service online at livestream.com backslash Salem Alliance.